One, one of the great encouragements of being uh, working at CMS is I just get reminded every now and then that as we gather here on Sunday morning, there are Christians gathering in all sorts of locations all around the world uh, to do the same thing that we are doing, to, to read the Bible, to pray together, to sing God's praises. And that's, that's a really encouraging thing. One of the joys of my job is that I get to join people doing that around the world. Um, and it's, it's really encouraging. So I just wanted to pass that encouragement on to you. So what good is a promise? Uh, we're not long after an election campaign here in, in Australia. A lot of promises were made then. Um, what, what good are those promises? Uh, amongst our congregation, we've got students at uni and just about to do the HSC and various promises are being made to them about the outcomes that may or may not happen based on what they are currently doing. Uh, daily, we are bombarded with ads that make all sorts of promises, whether it's investment performance or better digestion or speaking a new language in three weeks, no, uh, or just being cooler. So many promises, but what good are they? In these weeks, as we think about the, the story of Jacob uh, in Genesis, we are going to see a whole lot of promises. Uh, in fact, throughout Genesis, one of, the, uh, one of the major themes that just comes up again and again is the theme of promise. So as, as we read about Jacob, we need to think about these issues of promise. What are the promises? Who is making them? How's the history of promise-keeping for that person? Are they realistic? And what do promises made several thousand years ago mean for us today? So to make sure we know kind of where we're going with this theme of promise, we need to remember where we are in Genesis. Uh, in chapters 1 and 2 in Genesis, God uh, has created everything. He is the creator of the entire universe, including us. And as a result, he sits in a position of authority over everything, including humanity. And chapter 3, humanity in the form of Adam and Eve have said, no thanks, we'd rather be our own authority. Uh, that is the essence of sin. Um, that has not gone well. And they and creation and their relationship with God has suffered as a result. Uh, the result of the fall, the result of this uh, coming in of sin, is that instead of words like harmony, perfection, blessing being the dominant theme, uh, now it is disharmony, imperfection and curse. And, and from chapter 3 and chapter 4 and onwards, we have seen the outworking of that new reality in the form of personal and, and national decline uh, in, in terms of relationship with God. However, in Genesis chapter 12, there has been a major pause in this kind of decline. In the context of curse and imperfection, God has pulled this nobody, Abram, out of obscurity and made promises to him. On the screen, you're going to see the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. And in these three verses, with these promises, the trajectory of creation changes. 
The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Look at all those will words. That is promise language, isn't it? Lots of promises there. Promises of redemption, blessing, restoration. And a critical aspect of all this promise is the family line of Abram, soon to become Abraham. Because we see in these three verses that it is through his family line that the promises will flow. So in a very real sense, Abram and then his son Isaac, the son of Abram, and then his son Jacob are the sons of the promise because it is through them, through their line, that these promises flow. Now, of course, even in these immediate generations, we have seen God's hand at work. As he, as he manages and as he directs these promises, God, God changes the natural order of things. Not because of anything that the people themselves have done, but to show again that it is his will and his promise that is being worked out. It is through Isaac, not Ishmael. It is through Jacob, the younger, not Esau, the older, that the promise will flow. Generation by generation, it is clear that God is in control of his promises And as we saw last week, he even uses human frailty and deception and scheming and whatever else to achieve his purpose. Which brings us to today's passage, end of chapter 27 and chapter 28. Uh, This this passage has two very kind of clear sections defined by location. Uh, The first is in the vicinity of Isaac and Rebekah in Beersheba the territory of the Hittites. And the second is in the section where Jacob is is out in the desert somewhere, um, and that's where he has his dream. Uh, In the first section, as as Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob and Esau are there, the, the conversation that goes on reminds us of the seriousness of what has just happened, and that kind of the conspiracy and the the deception that has resulted in Jacob the younger receiving the blessing of the elder Israel, uh, Esau, even though we know from earlier chapters that that is God's promise. Uh, as we've seen, the family line is really important and the, the formal passing on of the blessing and the promise from, from one generation to the next is a really big deal. So the fact that because of what has happened, Isaac is blessed in normal circumstances, he's the wrong guy because he's the younger. It's a very big deal. And that fact is absolutely not lost on Esau. He is furious, so furious that he also makes a promise to kill his brother. Now, this isn't just a case of fury because, you know, the reading of the will didn't work out and he didn't get the good dinner set. No, Esau's vow to kill his brother is a true reflection of the gravity of what has happened. The natural order of things 
has been messed up. In his mind, this is just wrong. Even though, from the promises earlier, we know it is God's plan. Now, Rebecca, continuing to be kind of, well, she kind of comes across as a bit of a schemer, doesn't she? Um, She is seeing what's going on and she hatches a plan to get Jacob out of harm's way because we know that Jacob is her favourite. She comes up with a plan to send him off to Uncle Laban, manages to spin the story with Isaac so that he agrees and and, uh, he also sends Jacob off. And interestingly, in the context of this sort of send-off, we get this reiteration of the promises to Abraham. There is absolutely no sense of Isaac going, look, sorry, mate, you know, I know what I've done. I've had a bit of a rethink. Let's change the blessing. No, no, no. It is an absolute reiteration. The blessing stands. It is repeated. So what this first section does for us is to explain why Jacob is out in the desert having his dream. It also kind of wraps up for the moment the, the awkward slash weird family dynamic with Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob and Esau. And so Jacob goes off. Which brings us to the second session, uh, section, out in the desert, Jacob's dream. Now I was going to say something like, this episode in Jacob's life is a bit unusual. But I decided not to say that. Because I think we could say that at just about every point in Jacob's life, right? Jacob is not a normal guy. He is not a normal Israelite experiencing normal, average things. It's important we realise that, lest we be tempted to say, maybe I should go out into the desert and sleep with a rock as a pillow, and I too will have a vision of God more likely you'll have a vision of neck pain. What we are precisely not supposed to do with these people is to say, I am just like them, I should expect what has happened to them to happen to me. Uh, That is not the way we should read the Old Testament, to make these characters kind of a, a moral or some sort of legal model which we should imitate. Um, I'll have some positive things about to say about how we can read the Old Testament uh, in a moment. But with that kind of, um, this is an extraordinary rather normal event, you know, don't try this at home type caveat, let's have a look at what happens. Jacob is in the middle of nowhere on the way to Laban's place. Uh, In verse 11 we're told it's a certain place, a place so unimportant that at the moment we're not told its name. He's tired, so he takes a rock to use as a pillow and he lies down for the night and that's all very kind of this is the normal thing to do kind of vibe. And he has a dream. Now, just before we look at the dream, we need to remember that dreams as a form of divine communication are are not particularly uncommon in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's not uncommon for God to speak to people through dreams and by all accounts for many missionaries I know in the Middle East he continues to do so. So in his dream Jacob has a vision. Uh, Let's look at the description of the vision in detail because I think it helps us understand what is going on 
and it helps us understand as Christians what should we do with this this vision. What we see has has come to be known as Jacob's Ladder or a stairway to heaven. Maybe I should have got the musos to knock out stairway to heaven for me. That would have been great. Um, What he sees is a stairway, a, a ladder reaching between heaven and earth. It's a, it's a bridge, a, a passageway, if you like, between two realms, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And verse 12 tells us that the beings using this stairway are angels coming down from heaven to earth and returning again. Um, typically, angels are considered, you know, celestial beings, often with a, a messenger-type purpose, but here there, there is no indication of, of what they are doing when they come to earth. They just, they just are coming and then they return again, just going backwards and forwards. Uh, there's no indication that Jacob himself climbs the stairway. All he, he's doing is, is kind of standing at a distance watching what is happening. However, it is something that he alone is seeing. It's a, it's a private dream in that sense. It's not a a public vision, it's not some sort of um, divine broadcast, it is a vision which God is specifically giving to him. So there's two structural kind of bits in the dream, that is the stairway and the two realms that the stairway connects. We've seen who is using the stairway. But there's one more major character involved in the dream. Have a look at verse 13. There above the stairway stands the Lord. And the description makes me picture God standing there in a kind of a, this is my realm kind of way. Perhaps the presence of God there underlines the fact that the stairway is between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. But God is not a passive figure in this dream because God, as opposed to the angels who don't say anything, God speaks and he says two things. The first thing is that he identifies himself. Now, how does he do that? What does he say of all the things that God says, God, the creator of heaven and earth, could say about himself to identify himself in the dream how does he? He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. Why do you think he does that? Why doesn't he say, I am the Lord, creator of heaven and earth? I mean, we're in Genesis after all, you know, just a few chapters earlier we have seen he has created heaven and earth. I reckon personally that's got a bit more clout. But no, he instead identifies himself with the first two elements of what are are going to become a three-element identification that is very common in the Old Testament. Very often in the Old Testament, we see something that God identifies himself as, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I think that type of identification is a prompt for us, kind of a a synonym almost 
of saying, I am the God of promise. Because what is it that ties each of those, well, two and to be three together? It's the line of promise. For each of them, God is saying, in you, my promise continues. Here's an example of this identifier being used in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. God said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob appeared to me and said, and on he goes. In the context of Moses being summoned by God to go and lead his people out of slavery in the Exodus, what is it that Israel needs to hear? That the God who is calling them, that the God who is leading them, is the God of promise and is the God who is faithful to his promise. So I think in identifying himself and using the kind of the beginning of this formula in Jacob's dream, God is making a statement that he is the God of promise. Well, that's the first thing God says. He identifies himself. The second thing is he continues to speak and he makes a whole bunch of promises. I I don't know if you noticed this while um, the, the Bible was being read for us, But the word will is repeated seven times in this little speech, all in the context of something that God will do. That is a lot of promises. Have a look at the screen. Here's the text again, verses 13 to 15, and I've I've underlined or highlighted the will words. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out the wet to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and you will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. I mean, Not since a Saturday before Election Day have we heard so many promises. And yet, here's the thing. For those who have been reading Genesis from the start, there's a whole lot of promises in this passage that are not new at all. You will be a blessing to the nations. Well, we've heard that before. Hello, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. You'll be really numerous. Genesis 13, 14 to 16, I'll make your descendants like the dust of the earth. Genesis 15, 5, like the stars in the sky. I'll give you land. Genesis 12, again, Genesis uh, 17. The bottom line is there's a whole lot of stuff in this passage that is not new in this extensive list of promises. God is just reiterating what he has said before. Now, why does he do that? I suspect it's got something to do with the fact that Jacob is running away from his brother who is trying to kill him. Sure, I'm sure uh, Jacob is probably aware of the promises that God made to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac, but at the moment he may not be feeling like things are totally under control. 
His brother is trying to kill him. He's having to leave as a result. He has just benefited from a fairly significant conspiracy to change the natural order of blessing. He's out in the desert, on the run, and he's having a vision of God. Fair enough that he might be forgetting a few things and feeling a bit worried about what's going to happen next. He needs to be reminded. I mean, how often do we need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel? That Jesus died for our sins and rose again and is seated as our Lord. I'm sure you've heard that once before. I'm sure you, well, I hope you believed it when you heard it. But do you remember it every day? Does it change your thinking? Does it change your attitude as often as it should? I suspect not. We get distracted. We forget. We try and change things to suit our, our gospel mind, but we forget. That's, that's not a unique problem for a Christian who's kind of flaky or, or shallow or has a particularly difficult life. That is a totally normal thing in our Christian life. As Peter writes his second letter, he focuses on this theme of remember, remind, for this exact reason. We forget. And what forgetfulness needs is not something new, but a reminder of the existence and the importance of the old, a refresher in what already exists. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, speaking of the gospel, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are fully established in the truth you, once, you now have. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not telling you anything new, but I am going to remind you. When we forget the gospel or forget God's good promises to us, it's not a new gospel or new promises that we need. It's a reminder of what God has already said, of what God has already done. So it is with Jacob. But in that list of seven promises, there is also some new stuff. Not in a kind of a, whoa, I never saw that coming kind of way, but a new articulation of the promises of God. I'm thinking of verse 15 particularly. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you. I think those promises really highlight the, the difficulty and the tension of the situation that Jacob is in. For him to hear those words of preservation and the I am with you promises from God is a huge thing in the situation he is in. So what's Jacob's response to the dream? Have a look at verse 16. He isn't, wow, that was weird. I don't know what that was all about, in a way which is usually our response to weird dreams, right? No, he says, this is God's place. How awesome is this place? And he means that in the true sense of the word rather than in the teenage sense of the word. It is awe-inspiring. It is fearful. 
because it is God's place. And in this place, God spoke directly to him, something that had never happened before. And as a marker of what's happened, he he sets up this pillar, which is a pretty normal thing to do to commemorate a place of divine significance, and he renames the place Bethel, which means the house of God or the place of God. And he accompanies this construction with a, with a recognition and a, and a vow with reference to the return to the land, which, of course, has just happened. Uh, we've just heard in the promise. So, more or less, we can understand what's happening in the dream. I think the question for us is, what do we do with this passage? What, how do we, as, as 21st century Christians, read and apply this passage? Well, I think there's two big categories we need to think about. The first is, what does this passage tell us about God? And the answer is, our God is a God of promise. He makes promises and he continues in faithfulness to those promises. That Jacob is in this position is is completely kind of unnatural and it goes against the all, all the order of things, yes. He's not the firstborn, he doesn't deserve the birth, birthright or the blessing and yet he has it. Why? Because of his brilliant strategy and the execution of a cunning plan? No, because of the promise of God. And as we continue to read Genesis and, and the rest of the Bible, we are going to see a continuation of that theme of promise and God's faithfulness to his promise. But the second big category to think about when we read a passage like this, and especially a passage like this from the Old Testament, is to think, what do we do with it? Uh, I said earlier that an inappropriate application would be to go outside and sleep with a rock as a pillow and expect God to speak to you. Now, I say that because nowhere in the Bible is it suggested that treating the Old Testament characters like that is the appropriate thing to do. It happened to them, it'll happen to me. That, if that's not the method, what is or should be the method? The answer is, we need to think about how this passage fits into the entire story of the Bible. And because Jesus is the focus of the Bible, the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible is taking us to Jesus, we need to think about how this passage points us to Jesus. Now, one good way to do that, kind of a rule of thumb sort of way to do that, is to think, does the New Testament ever refer to that character or that incident? And kind of take our lead from that. Well, in this case, it does. Uh, We've read earlier some verses from John chapter 1, the passage where Jesus, uh, early in Jesus' ministry, he's calling his disciples and he's called his disciple Nathaniel and Nathaniel's pretty impressed with Jesus because he has seen him uh, before Nathaniel has noticed Jesus and all that. And he has said to Jesus, he's called Jesus the Son of God, the King of Israel. But here's John chapter 1, verses 50 and 51 again. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, 
you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's the vision of Jacob's dream, isn't it? It's Jacob's ladder. You'll have exactly the same vision, Nathaniel, as Jacob. Almost. I say almost because it's actually not the same, is it? There's one very important change. That is, the angels are coming and going from heaven, just like in Jacob's vision. But who are they coming and going to? The Son of Man. As we read John's Gospel, we we learn that the title, the Son of Man, is the, the title Jesus uses to talk about himself. So the angels of God will, will not be coming and going to earth or somehow through a, a revelation to Jacob, but to Jesus. Jesus is the key connection between heaven and earth. He's, he's the fulfillment, if you like, of the promises in Jacob's dream. Add to this the declaration that, that John has made earlier about Jesus He said, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, which reminds us of the name Jacob gave to the place where the dream happened, the place of God. Jacob sets up the pillar and renames the location Bethel because it's the house of God or the place of God. But now in Jesus, the place of God is not a place, but a person. In Jesus, the promises made to Jacob in the dream, in fact, the promises made to Abraham that we have seen flow through to Jacob are fulfilled. The promises of God are meaningful promises because the promises are made by God, made by a God who is faithful. And in Jesus, we see the perfect kind of articulation and demonstration of that faithfulness. So what do we do with that? How does that, seeing that flow through from the promises to Jacob, to the the vision of Jacob, the dream, to Jesus being the fulfilment of that promise affect us? The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. In, uh, In chapter 11 in Hebrews, he gives this great list. It's kind of, it's called the heroes of faith list, something like that. And includes Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And at the conclusion of the list, he says this, and, and I'm just going to end with this reading. I'm not going to explain it. I just want you to listen carefully because I think it gives us our application. We've been talking about promises. We've seen how the promises of God are, are fulfilled, are focused in on Jesus what then should we do? Listen to what Hebrews says and keeping our ear out for two things. One, where are the promises fulfilled? Two, what is the thing to do because of that fulfillment? Where are the promises fulfilled? What is the thing to do because of that fulfillment? This is from Hebrews 11. These, the heroes of faith, were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. 
since God had planned something better for us, so that, any, uh, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of promises. We thank you that you are faithful to your promises. Thank you that in Jacob we see your faithfulness to the promise of redeeming our fallen world. And thank you that in the Lord Jesus we see the fulfilment of those promises. We ask that we would not get entangled in the things that can distract us, that we would not grow weary, that we would not lose heart. Rather, we would remember and rejoice in your promises. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing.